Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Inspiring revolutionary and a fighter. We learned of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was not only a giant in the legal profession, but uh, a beloved figure. Bader Ginsburg was only the second woman ever to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court, a hero of the Her dissents and opinions were just 100% strong. She always stood by them, and that's a really powerful message moving forward. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a true hero to all women. On Friday, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and 87-year-old five-foot pop culture icon of the politically liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And with her passing, a prized vacancy on the highest and most influential court in the U.S. So I have to make a decision to fill the seat. As we say, we should have a new campaign. Let's make a T-shirt, fill the seat, Okay. This is Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Manveen is away having a spa break, so hold tight while some stand-ins like me hold the fort. Today, RBG and the US Supreme Court, her life and the new election battle. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had many distinctive aspects to her personality. Henry Zeffman is Washington correspondent for The Times. Particularly after she became, in her late life, a sort of liberal pop culture icon. Kill scandal. But one of the defining characteristics and enduring characteristics of her was her love of opera, which she shared with a fair number of people in Washington. Their productions regularly at the Kennedy Center in Washington, which is right next to the famous Watergate apartment complex in which she lived. Music is the one time when my head isn't filled with 
briefs and opinions. And all that is put on a shelf, and I just enjoy it. One Saturday night in late 2016, I think just a few weeks after Donald Trump had been elected to succeed Barack Obama, in fact, the Kennedy Center was full to see The Daughter of the Regiment, which is a 1840 comedy by Donizetti. And one role in it is a sort of small comic role, which is often played by celebrities. And on that occasion, curtain rose at the start of Act Two, and there was a tiny woman, barely five foot tall, sitting with her back to the audience. And she swiveled around, and there it was, 83-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg playing the Duchess of Crackenthorpe. The best are willing to listen and learn. No surprise, then, that the most valorous Crackenthorpians have been women. And her love of opera, as you say, was shared with many people in Washington, including her sort of ideological opposite numbers on the Supreme Court. That's right. And there was one Supreme Court justice with whom she was, I think, basically best friends, along with his wife and her husband. He was called Antonin Scalia. And they'd actually been friends before they both made it onto the Supreme Court. They sat on the same federal appeals court. And they really were polar opposites. Scalia was one of the linchpins uh, for decades of the Supreme Court's ultra-conservative wing. He wrote these brilliantly lucid, comical almost, dissents, and they often were dissents, you know, raging at, at what he saw as the unlawfully, unconstitutionally liberal direction of some decisions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, by contrast, was, at least by the time she died, the effective leader of the court's liberal wing, at that point a minority. But they are also united, actually, in the controversy which has followed their deaths. Supreme Court appointments are for life or until retirement, and it is the case that many justices serve until they die. And both Scalia and Ginsburg died during heated election campaigns. Scalia died earlier, but nevertheless during the 2016 election cycle. Antonin Scalia was the last Supreme Court justice to die in office. He passed in Barack Obama's final months as president, nine months from the election. Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace him. The Senate has to approve the nomination, but just as now, there was a Republican majority at the time, and their leader, Mitch McConnell, refused to call a vote. It was too close to the election, he said. It would have to be up to the next president to pick. This time round, the president, now Donald Trump, will, it is clear, nominate somebody to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that same Senate Republican majority under that same Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, is, it seems increasingly clear, going to hold a vote on whether to approve that nomination. The thing to understand about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she was a rare example of a Supreme Court justice who profoundly influential on American law before she got to the bench. She, as a lawyer, argued many cases, or I think, you know, six or seven cases before the Supreme Court, all but one of them successfully. But crucially, they were mostly on concerning issues of 
women's rights and gender equality, which at the time was, you know, I suppose an underdeveloped aspect of law. And she was often arguing them, by the way, before all male benches. Mm. And look, she really was a trailblazer. I mean, she had a very tough time entering the law, I suppose. She grew up the only child of basically working-class Jewish parents in Brooklyn, New York. Her father uh, had come to the country in his teens from Ukraine. Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to Cornell University, had her first child, then went to law school at Harvard, where she was one of the very few women in her class. And the head of Harvard Law School invited the small intake of women in that year round to dinner early in their time and asked them each to justify why they were taking the place of a man. And Ginsburg was a bit flustered, understandably, and eventually blurted out something like, you know, my husband's also at law school and I want to understand what he's talking about. Which, of course, was not the reason. The reason was that she was an incredibly smart woman with a passion and aptitude for the law. Her law school professor recommended her for a clerkship at the Supreme Court. Now, that's the sort of typical thing that future Supreme Court justices do. They work as an effectively assistant to a Supreme Court judge, and it marks them out Mm. decades later. They're going to be, you know, one of the top lawyers of their generation. And the liberal justice to whom she was recommended could not comprehend the idea of appointing a woman, so she didn't get that. It's a career of defying setbacks like that in a world, a legal world, where women just were not expected to rise in the way that she did. And anyway, rise she did in 1980. She was appointed to the Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. by Jimmy Carter. And then eventually, in 1993, appointed to Supreme Court. She was the first of two appointments made by Bill Clinton. She was only at that stage the second ever woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court. What was her approach to being on the court? She was often, as you said, in the minority, in the liberal minority. So did she have much impact? Her style was actually quite bipartisan, which is unusual given or perhaps a bit unexpected looking back now where she is this sort of liberal icon. I mean, where I live in Washington, D.C., it's a fairly residential neighbourhood, only about 20 minutes walk north of the White House. And on the side of a sandwich shop, quite literally the end of my road, there is a huge mural of her where people have been leaving flowers and uh, lots of post-it notes saying thank you and uh, honour her wish, a reference to her dying wish, which was dictated to a granddaughter, where she said, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. And given this sort of cult liberal following she's achieved, I mean, I don't think there are murals to any of the other three liberal justices at the moment as it stands. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't expect that she was actually, when she was appointed, some sort of liberals, uh, Democrats, were a bit anxious that she was too collegiate and too moderate, basically. Her style was very much to forge strong friendships with conservatives with whom she served. As time went on, she grew more, I suppose, outspoken and more withering, I think, in the way she approached the other part of the court. So the way Supreme Court rulings work is that the majority, it's a nine-member panel, so for a majority you have to have at least five. And actually often on non-controversial cases they will rule 9-0 or 8-1 or 7-2. But on those sort of hot-button, small-p political cases, you do often get them ruling 5-4. 
and someone will write an opinion for the majority and someone will write an opinion for the minority. And increasingly, particularly from 2006, when she became for three years the only woman on the court after the first woman, Sandra Day O'Connor, who'd been appointed by Ronald Reagan, retired... Ginsburg became more outspoken. She gave more dissents. She started reading some of them from the bench. And that's when she started to morph into this sort of pop culture, Mm. notorious RBG, rather than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the slightly quiet, quite bipartisan, quite moderate, who'd been appointed by Bill Clinton 13 years before that. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honourable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this honourable court. Tell us about one example of of some kind of dissent that particularly set people alight. And and is the issue with, you know, constantly writing really good dissents that it might be interesting, it might gain you notoriety as it did for her, but will it actually do anything for anybody if you're just sort of discussing this from the sidelines? The Supreme Court... I mean, it's so strange the way it works to British ears, I think. And yes, I mean, of course it's true, you know, to some degree there's not a lot you can do with a withering dissent. The reality of the Supreme Court, as we are seeing now, is that it's a lottery of death. You know, who controls it at various times? I mean, it doesn't have to be. This is one criticism of her, is that perhaps she might have retired while Barack Obama was president and given him the opportunity to appoint a much younger replacement who would have lasted several decades. But major court appointments often happen because someone happens to die at a certain point. And that's how ideological balances swing. Hmm. One particularly sort of memorable dissent was on a case to do with the Voting Rights Act, which was the 1960s legislation, which basically extended the not to put it too crudely, basically extended the right to vote to black Americans. Hmm. And the Supreme Court majority gutted, as Ginsburg would see it, the Voting Rights Act. It specifically invalidated a provision which required basically southern states to seek permission from the federal government before they changed voting procedures. Now, you've got to understand that that there's lots of sort of names of judicial doctrines bouncing about, which are all really fascinating, but probably too niche for for this podcast. And one of the doctrines which supposedly governs how conservative jurists operate is judicial restraint, the idea that that they should basically just not do very much, they should not interfere with the legislative branch. So what has become of the court's usual restraint was how Ginsburg... Uh, started this part of her dissent, basically mocking the conservative justices who talk about not interfering with the legislative branch for overturning uh, a a crucial part of the 1965 Act. Uh, And then she talked about Martin Luther King. She said, the great man who led the march from Selma to Montgomery and there called for the passage of the Voting Rights Act foresaw progress, even in Alabama. The arc of the moral universe is long, he said, but it bends towards justice, famous quote. And then she added, but only if there is a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. That commitment has been deserved by today's decision. So effectively accusing that conservative majority with whom she was very close personally Mm. of letting down the civil rights movement of the 1960s. 
And in terms of victories, one of the key ones was the decision which allowed women into what had been an all-male military university. That was quite a key, very symbolic thing, especially for such a militarised nation as the US. That's right. And it was also an example of how far she'd come from before her, uh, you know, from, the, from when she was pleading cases before this all-male court. I think it was in 1996. This was a military institute in Lexington, and she'd found that she wrote for the court that the all-male admissions policy was unconstitutional. She said that the Constitution required an exceedingly persuasive justification for treating men and women differently, and that, she wrote, generalizations about the way women are no longer justify denying opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. You can't but acknowledge the sort of poignancy of this being written and this law being delivered by a woman whose life had been defined by men refusing her places in historically all-male institutions and her overcoming them to get onto the Supreme Court and delivering crucial rulings about ending or overturning long periods of gender discrimination. Mm. But when we're talking about the US Supreme Court, Henry, for people who've been living under a rock, what exactly is it? And how does it fit into, you know, the the powers of Donald Trump and the powers of the Senate or or the House of Representatives? It's much more powerful than the UK judicial branch and the UK Supreme Court. And it's much more political. Mm. The Supreme Court is a powerful restraint, often, or enabler on other occasions, of executive decisions. And it is responsible at various points for many of the major changes in American life. The Supreme Court is what legalised equal marriage across America just a few short years ago. The Supreme Court was also what, after a very, very tense series of arguments, ultimately declared that Obamacare, the healthcare, flagship healthcare programme, was constitutional. You know, there are few major questions of American life that are not ultimately answered in some form by the Supreme Court. So this nine-member panel holds such enormous sway and, you know, every single one of them, their legal philosophies poured over prior to their appointment and also after their appointment, you know, whole books written about them in a way that you wouldn't get about, you know, random Supreme Court judge in the UK. So it is really hard to overstate the significance of whoever it is who replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, you know, small morsels of their legal philosophy could blossom into having huge impact on the ordinary everyday lives of ordinary everyday Americans. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look ahead for us then and the wrangling that's going to happen over filling her now vacant seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. What are the challenges? If we look at this from the view of Senate Republicans who, like Donald Trump, want to fill this seat and approve someone sharpish. What are the possible stumbling blocks for them? Well, they need 50 votes. The Senate is 100 people. They don't need 51 because in the event of a tie, the vice president breaks the tie. And he, of course, is Mike Pence, a Republican. So this can be 50-50 and they can get, they can get the Supreme Court nomination through. Hmm. Now, they are probably not going to get all 53 as they currently are, Republican senators voting for this for various reasons. Two who have already said that they don't believe a vote should be brought before the election. So those two are Susan Collins, who's a senator from Maine. And Susan Collins is part of a a sort of a Senate which doesn't really exist anymore. The Senate of 15, 20 years ago, when you did have Republicans from Maine and Democrats from North Dakota and so on, who crossed party lines and were re-elected and re-elected because their voters, you know, enjoyed their bipartisanship and thought it was a good thing. Collins has really struggled to maintain that under Trump. The second Republican senator who's said a similar thing is a woman called Lisa Murkowski. She's a senator from Alaska. And she <laughs> she managed to get herself quoted literally hours before Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. She was asked the question of whether she would support the nomination of a replacement should a seat come up before the election. I mean, you know, it was cast in general terms, but everyone knew that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was seriously ill. She had a fifth bout of cancer. And Murkowski said, no, it's too soon. I mean, even if she'd wanted to backtrack on that, you know, the quote was so clear. So anyway, she hasn't backtracked on that. So that's two, but you need two more if this isn't going to happen. And we should say, by the way, think through the calculation for these Republicans. You've got to remember the vast majority of these Senate Republicans privately believe that Donald Trump is not fit for office. In fact, in the 2016 election, they said so in public. I mean, it's not a great secret that he was first nominated as a Republican candidate and then in some cases elected as president in defiance of what they hoped for. Mm. The, The sort of first Trump term for them has been about Okay, what, you know, we don't necessarily believe this man is a sincere conservative in the way that we are. So how can we get conservative wins out of him? And that has been judicial appointments. You know, it's not just the Supreme Court. The Senate approves judicial appointments to the federal bench right across this land. And Mitch McConnell's great project has been basically getting young, ultra-conservative judges onto courts across America because they will be there for decades. And what of the runners and riders? Is it clear at all yet? who might, who they're after to fill this slot? It looks very likely that that Donald Trump will nominate a woman. 
There's only two women on the court at the moment, Eleanor Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, who were the two Supreme Court justices appointed by Barack Obama. A woman who seems to be the front runner is Amy Coney Barrett. She currently serves on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which is in Chicago, uh, and a protege of that man we mentioned, Antonin Scalia. She was one of his clerks and you know, is very much in that tradition. Like Scalia, she's a devout Catholic, which caused some slightly fractious exchanges when she had her Senate hearing for her appeals court nomination with some sort of Democratic senators questioning the influence of Catholic doctrine in her rulings. Another name who seems to be rising up the conversation pretty sharpish is a woman called Barbara Lagoa. She serves on the 11th Circuit of the Court of Appeals, which is based in Atlanta, Georgia. She's a Floridian and she's a Cuban-American. And I think given that Florida is a key swing state and that Cuban-Americans are a key demographic in Florida to whom Donald Trump is desperate to appeal, you could see the sort of pragmatic case in an election year for the White House nominating a Cuban-American woman, a conservative Cuban-American woman, to serve on the Supreme Court. There's a few other names. Britt Grant, who's only 42. I mean, so we'd be talking, you know, 40 years on the court for her, is a former Supreme Court justice in the state of Georgia. She's sort of very much involved in the Federalist Society, which is sort of conservative legal pressure group. And she was a clerk to Brett Kavanaugh. So there's, there's any number of these names. This process is being expedited to a really significant degree. I mean, these confirmations often, not always, but often take months. But, you know, they are, they are working against the ticking clock of a presidential election. Let's end then, because obviously, as all of this is happening, there are still lots of people, lots of young people, lots of liberal people. If you look at Instagram, if you look at that mural near your house, who are still grieving Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her and, and the space that's now empty in that kind of pop culture landscape. Can you tell me some of the things I saw on your Twitter? There's people were leaving post-it notes on the mural. What did some of them say? Some just said, thank you. Some had quotes from, from rulings. One said, thank you for inspiring my career path and, and paving the way for women in the legal field, a hero, a warrior, an inspiration, rest in power. Uh, some just drew hearts. A lot of the people I saw at this mural over the last few days, you know, they did look very emotional and upset, mm. often but not all women. Uh, and there was a, just a few miles away outside the Supreme Court, there was a, a huge vigil, spontaneous on the night of her death, and then a bit more organised the next night, on the, on the night of her death, which was the first night of Rosh Hashanah, and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a devout Jew. Some of the people uh, who attended this sort of spontaneous act of mournings recited the mourner's Kaddish of the Jewish religion. And by the way, as and when Donald Trump nominates a replacement, and as and when the Senate holds a vote, I think we're going to see the most extraordinarily large marches and protests in Washington. I mean, you'll remember the, the Women's March mm. just after Donald Trump was elected. I mean, someone said to me on the night of her death, they said to me, you know, this is going to be the Women's March times 100. I think that may well be right, notwithstanding coronavirus. It's not just the ability of Senate Conservatives to replace a Liberal justice with a Conservative that will rankle with these protesters. It, it, it is also... I think the hypocrisy of the contrast between how they handled Scalia's death and Ginsburg's death, but also for a lot of liberal Americans and also a lot of American women, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg exemplified the transformation 
in how American women were treated over her lifetime. And they will fear that with her replacement, even if her replacement is a woman, mm. there will be backsliding on some of those important liberal judgments. And so I don't think that the emotional outpouring following her death is going to be confined to post-it notes and flowers outside of murals. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Henry Zeffman, Washington correspondent for The Times. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Raufast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, why not give us a review? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on the Times Radio app. Along with all the other podcasts for the Times, you can also listen live to Times Radio. It's well worth a listen. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. Goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.